Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Mount Rainier is not erupting. But that's not all we have to tell you this week. I have asked three local journalists to help us understand what has happened this past week. And we've decided to call it Week in Review. And this week we have Puget Sound Business Journal Editor-in-Chief Ryan Lambert. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Bill. Publicola Editor and Publisher Erica Barnett. Hi, Erica. Hey, Bill. And KUOW's Politics Reporter David Hyde. Hi, David. David, can you hear me? Because I didn't hear yeah. you. Oh, you did say hello. Yeah. Oh, maybe you just smiled. Okay, thank you for the hello. Um, I can and I can see them. I can see David smiling, and I'm trying to figure out what color is the wall behind Ryan, and I'm just not sure. And that's because we are streaming live streaming the show on uh, Facebook and YouTube, so you can watch the show if you want to. You just uh, search KUOW Public Radio. Do you have a word for the wall behind you, Ryan? I call it split pea puke, but uh... split pea puke. You know, um, I think I'm a better for having learned that on balance. <laughs> it's a tough. It, 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 it was a close call, but I think I'm slightly happier that I heard that. So thank you. I think it's chartreuse. Chartreuse. Okay. <laughs> Feel free to tweet at us. You know. Um, okay, so let's let's get into the show this week. Teachers ended their strike in Kent but not in Eatonville and Pierce County and not in the city of Seattle. David Hyde, you hit the Seattle streets to find out how hard this interruption in their education is hitting our local children. Sonia Greenman was supposed to start first grade this week. Is she disappointed school hasn't started yet? Not so much. Instead, she's here at the Green Lake Playground eating a strawberry shortcake ice cream bar and spinning around on the merry-go-round with about a dozen other kids. And if someone spins it fast, I'll just scream, scream all the spinning. She plans to just scream, scream all the spinning. So, David, it sounds like she thinks her teachers should hold out for higher compensation, smaller class sizes, and more staff support. I don't know about that. She's in no hurry to get back into the classroom, but mm-hmm. she didn't have much to say to me about some of the big issues in this uh, in this strike. Mm. Well, then I guess we're going to have to rely on you. What are those big issues? Uh, For the union, support for special education seems to be the big one that folks are talking about. And the deal here, of course, is that the district is moving more special ed kids into mainstream classrooms. It's actually called mainstreaming. Um, And teachers basically just want to make sure that the instructional support is there. I spoke to teachers outside of Salmon Bay Middle School this week. Um, One told me, actually, many told me that they had more than 30 kids in some classes. And in some cases, up to 10 of them are kids with special educational needs like dyslexia, maybe it's behavioral issues. So under this new district policy, more and more mainstream classrooms are going to look like this school, Salmon Bay, where it's, where it's already happening. And teachers say, we just want to make sure that the kids are getting enough instructional support. Um, teacher pay, of course, is another big one for the union, including pay for substitutes and other staff. And for its part, the district says it's offering pay hikes above the cost of living and that it's planning to train teachers to be able to reach the special edge population. Um, But, you know, um, thinking a little bit about this whole issue and this strike in the context of 
Seattle public schools more generally. When it comes to the money, the district is forecasting big budget gaps because kids are leaving the district. And on top of that, there's been about 100 million bucks in federal COVID relief funds that are drying up. And it's not just budget woes, as everybody knows who's been reading the Seattle Times and other press. Uh, COVID's had a big impact. Only 18% of Native American students, only 30% of Black students in Seattle met grade level standards in math in this year's tests compared to 64% for white kids on average. And so I think COVID is this huge kind of five alarm fire level emergency um, for kids. I, you know, I, I hear people who are experts on education, I'm not one of them saying this could be a lost generation of kids. And so I'm hoping that when the strike is over, that we in the press will be asking tough questions of everybody who's in charge here, the board, administrators, union leadership. Uh, Maybe it's time to hear from the mayor, the city council, the governor and state lawmakers. What are they going to do to sort of regroup, reach these kids uh, and beyond the test scores even? What about the plummeting college enrollment rates uh, educators tell me it's a real crisis, and I think we in the press should be asking what's being done about it. I have one question about one of the aspects you mentioned, teacher pay, and then I'll, I'll bring in the other panelists. A f- uh, many of our listeners will remember a few years ago the state Supreme Court ruled that Washington was not adequately funding public schools. Since then, uh, money has come in. Teacher salaries have risen. Seattle public uh, school teachers make this is a big range between sixty three and one hundred twenty four thousand dollars a year, not including their benefits. They know they work a ton of overtime. I think everybody knows that they don't work most of the summer. This year, the state, as you said, the state has a cost of living adjustment. Seattle school is bumping that up another percent. Why do striking Seattle teachers say this teacher compensation part of it is still not enough? How do they how do they try to make that case? They're talking about their own salaries. If you are a mainstream educator currently in the city of Seattle, the cost of living when it comes to, uh, you know, buying a home. I talked to one teacher who told me she's basically going to have to decide, does she want to buy a house or does she want to have children in her case? And so it's just this. Sure, there's the there's the state cost of living increase metric that they look at, but teachers are saying they want it to be a little higher than that. And they're also talking about substitutes, um, you know, instructional aides. I actually, you got me in the park there for that first thing. I ended up talking to several babysitters and nannies um, who were watching kids who didn't who weren't parents, so I couldn't talk to their kid. But essentially, they were telling me they were a happy that the strike was happening because they were getting a little bit more work. But one babysitter told me that she actually has certification to teach in the schools, but she's making a lot more as a babysitter. So, you know, that's an issue when you're trying to attract teachers. Maybe the the pay has to go up for those folks. Any other reactions, questions? I've got more. But uh, yeah, there's there's been some um, some interesting coverage. Um, uh, Kevin Schofield, uh, writing for the South Seattle Emerald, did a piece about uh, teacher pay and, you know, and noted uh, covering the study um, by the uh, I believe the Economic Policy Institute that, you know, even though teacher pay um, is uh, going up, you know, commensurate or close to commensurate with inflation, it hasn't gone up commensurate with other jobs over the years. And so um, when you're talking about $63,000 starting salary in the city of Seattle, I mean, that is that is not nearly enough to uh, to, to afford most apartments, frankly. Um, and uh, David, you mentioned the um, the other educators that are in schools. Um, instruction assistants, um, and I, I believe uh, probably KUOW reported this, but I'm getting this from the Seattle Times, um, start off at $19 an hour. 
um, which is certainly not enough to to live in Seattle. And so there's um, there's also a wage battle happening, you know, with people who are not teachers. I think there's there's I've seen a lot of rhetoric, um, certainly on Twitter and uh, and elsewhere that, you know, oh, my, you know, these teachers are being selfish. They make six figures and, you know, and on and on. And I think that um, while that is, you know, in some cases true, uh, there's a question about, you know, whether six figures is enough to have kids and, uh, you know, buy a house. Um, but, you know, a lot of these folks are making, you know, more like 40, 50, $60,000 an hour. Um, so, so wages have not been rising all that fast um, over the last, you know, 50 years for educators. So th- there's a lot of catching up to do. David, I'm curious, these seem like universal issues uh, that would touch a, a variety of uh, school districts. Are you hearing anything about uh, other school districts that, uh, you know, sort of might uh, face the sort, same sort of labor strife? Uh, Seattle, obviously, is the largest school district in the state, but then you have uh, Bellevue and, and Lake Washington. I'm curious if you've heard anything uh, uh, about this spreading. I mean, I know what I read in the newspaper and I parachuted in on this topic for a couple of days. Normally I'm a politics reporter, right. so I can't answer uh, many detailed questions about what's happening in other districts now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's, let, maybe we should pause that there. Uh, I'm just looking at my notes. There's a lot we could say about this. Um, it, I mean, this thing might might end on Monday. I, I just we we don't know. The the district is getting students and families free lunches and working to get childcare for families. Uh, as some of the kids you talked to, David, they were highly aware that these days were going to get tacked on to the end of the school year. Um, so uh, the last day is supposed to be June 26th, but that may be uh, extending toward July and counting. Uh, anything else? Anything else we should know, David, going into the weekend about? Um, where negotiations stand. I know you said that the school district really hadn't had much to say. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, plus school days, Bill. Uh, snow days, I mean, we'll snow also days. be at, yeah, at right. the end of the year if there are any <laughs> snow days this year. No, I just know, you know, they brought in a mediator. The union said that they were making progress and are, op- you know, sent a message around saying they were optimistic. So, mm. you know, could it be over by Monday? I think a lot of parents, at least, if not their kids, but the parents at least are probably hoping that's the case. And certainly many of the parents I talked to spoke with said they were really disappointed. Um, you know, especially if you've got a second grader who really hasn't experienced anything other than sort of zoom or COVID impacted schooling, they're really looking forward to, to getting, you know, a, a regular school year. And so, so there is some kind of understanding of what's going on, but also some, some impatience perhaps that could start to, develop more if, if, you know, if it drags on for too long. Since we touched on the cost of living and the prospects for a teacher wanting to live in the city and maybe buy a home in the city, um, I want to ask Ryan about uh, your beat. You've been reporting on economic recovery at uh, Puget Sound Business Journal. You would call it an uneven recovery. Would you give us an update? Yeah, I, you know, a couple things just to bring that uh, uh, the teacher strike uh, conversation full circle. You know, one of the analysis is that we had been doing uh, annually up until uh, 2020 was looking at uh, the average teacher pay district to district um, covering 60 districts. And, you know, Seattle was uh, in the top 20, averaging about uh, 89000 a year for uh, their full-time teachers. Uh, Bellevue was about at uh, 92. And Lake Washington was actually at uh, 86. So you can 
you know, uh, sort of look at the cost of living in those areas and see that, you know, a lot of these teachers may not be able to live in the areas uh, where they are, uh, you know, uh, teaching at the school. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was rather interesting. Uh, as far as the uh, the economic recovery, you know, one of the thing uh, that we've been following very closely, uh, particularly in downtown Seattle, is uh, how retailers are are bouncing back. And uh, you know, we've uh, written a lot over the last couple of weeks about a couple of retailers uh, that have decided uh, to leave town and uh, move out of uh, downtown Seattle for one reason or another, and a couple of retails that. Uh, retailers that wanted to uh, double down. And so we've asked, uh, you know, experts in the area and the Downtown Seattle Association, uh, sort of what's behind this? What are they seeing? And uh, it has been uh, sort of this uneven sporadic recovery. You know, some areas are are really seeing um, the the consumers come back, uh, areas like a University Village and Pike Place Market. Uh, things are getting back to uh, pre-pandemic levels. Uh, but some of the areas that were, you know, facing problems uh, prior to 2020 are still facing problems uh, today. Uh, particularly, we've seen uh, retailers in the Pike Pine Corridor uh, close up. Anyone who's been down there, you see a lot of uh, boarded up storefronts uh, and things like that. Uh, most recently, uh, Carhartt uh, decided to uh, close their store uh, later this month, and they're going to head down to uh, the landing in Renton and open up a store. Uh, Amazon Go uh, has cl- closed up a shop and they're, uh, they've been ex- expanding everywhere. Uh, but most recently, we heard that uh, they are opening up a shop uh, in one of Amazon leased office building at the base of an Amazon, Amazon leased office building uh, in Bellevue. So it's just kind of been this, uh, you know, this, this slow move out of certain areas of the city and doubling down on other areas uh, of the city. And it's... Um, it's really going to be interesting to see how this uh, shakes out. I will say one uh, sort of side note to this is uh, there was a report uh, earlier in August uh, that talked about, uh, you know, some of the tourism numbers and the and the hotel occupancy numbers bouncing back. And uh, Seattle was among the strongest uh, for, you know, people coming back to the city and, and uh, uh, you know, occupying hotel rooms and things like that. And so that's one indication that things could be trending in in the right direction. And, you know, certainly bringing people, uh, bringing more people to the city uh, is reason enough for uh, some of these businesses uh, to stay open. Uh, Mm -hmm. Crime is one reason uh, why they uh, have opted to leave. But there have been a variety of reasons, uh, including just the, the cost of doing business. Erica, I know all this is on your beat as well. What's your take on, uh, we could do this every week, right? But we're talking uh, reactions to what Ryan says, uh, economic recovery, reasons for businesses close and move. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, uh, you know, looking at the numbers, I think uh, Seattle is bouncing back very, very well compared to other cities, um, especially since, you know, we only have something like, I think 40% of uh, office workers uh, from pre-pandemic levels um, working downtown. I mean, if you if you walk through a lot of downtown, it really does feel a lot more like pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, I work uh, I work downtown. I'm downtown a lot. Um, Pike Place Market in particular. I mean, it this summer it was absolutely mobbed. It felt absolutely like it has in past years. Um, So that's I mean, that's that's good anecdotal news. um, and, And the numbers are, you know, are also good. You know, I do think. 
Um, one of the stories that I covered this week was tangentially related, which is about Third Avenue and the Downtown Seattle Association is has been trying to sort of uh, push this revitalized Third, Third Avenue plan. Erica froze up. Yes, I read a little bit about this. I can pick up on that. Uh, they're talking about uh, moving the buses. That's that discussion has been around a long time. Right. You have so many buses uh, along third. And I think, uh, uh, you know, narrowing here and widening there. Uh, any tail into some Eric, cafes. Erica, so, you sound great uh, now. We lost it, you for a while. So if that happens again. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. A wave. Oh, but I, and, I said so much. I know. I said so many brilliant things. <laughs> I know. Well, you sound good. You, what, we're, we we lost you on um, on Third Avenue. And we to Third Avenue, uh, I've lived in the city on and off for, what, 40 years? And Third Avenue, that discussion of what are we going to do about Third Avenue and all the buses and, and the crime and the bus stops ongoing. So do you want to summarize what that plan yeah, is? Yeah, I'll summarize it much more briefly. Um, the Downtown Seattle Association has been pushing a plan for several years now, um, got derailed by the pandemic, obviously, to widen the sidewalks, uh, take some buses off Third Avenue and just make it a more welcoming space because there's a lot, um, you know, you can talk about crime and disorder and all of that. And, you know, certainly uh, there's debate over what the city is doing on that front. But if you have um, a really pedestrian hostile space, people aren't going to come there uh, no matter what. And that kind of leads to uh, desirable activities. And it also leads to people, um, you know, not wanting to open stores there. And that's kind of one of the corridors where you can see see downtown really not bouncing back is uh, is along Third Avenue where there's quite a few boarded up businesses still. That reminds me, we were talking, none of you were here, but we were talking about the concrete blocks last week that uh, some people and businesses put along their streets illegally to block RV campers from parking there. And I got a voicemail from a listener who thought we missed some stuff. I thought I would just play it to you uh, who, who weren't here, but any reaction you have uh, to this, uh, this RV camping uh, concrete blocking issue and the concerns this uh, listener is raising. I just think you guys are forgetting to mention the three shootings, the multiple sexual assaults, the rape, etc., on our block, thanks to those RVs. So that's a pretty crucial detail that got overlooked when talking about the poor victims of, uh, you know, in their RVs. I am a recovering drug addict, and this is not how you get people clean and sober. I have so many friends who have thanked the police, thanked the juries, thanked the judges. So um, Seattle's program is killing as many drunks and junkies as it is helping them. I, I think it's killing far more of them, you know, looking the other way. And why is it so onerous to move an RV every three days? I get it. It doesn't solve the problem. But it does share the joy of the rats, the thousands of uh, – we had 50,000 um, pounds of garbage removed after those RVs left, the feces, the needles, etc. Spread the love around Seattle. And the city offers to help them with batteries, with gas, etc. I've talked to numerous outreach workers. So um, there shouldn't be a problem to just keep it moving. None of us care when they're there for three days, even a week. Any more comment on the issues of, as we come out of the pandemic, the city starting to enforce that 72-hour RV, well, just parking limit, the three-day parking limit. Um, But then there's this question of, are they also going to uh, crack down on businesses and people uh, illegally blocking uh, folks from staying there with these giant so-called eco-blocks? Any reaction? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I originally broke the story or started writing about those eco blocks um, last year. And, um, and I, I think the short answer to that question is no, the city's not going to do anything. Um, they have said um, it's a Seattle Department of Transportation responsibility, and they basically have said consistently, there's too many of them. We can't do anything about it. And we don't have a plan. And you we know, don't know who put kinda, them there. And they're very heavy. Yeah. And they're very heavy. And, you know, and it's and it's businesses, of course, that are putting them there. Um, you know, I would say to the um, in response to the voicemail, I think there's some misconceptions there about um, uh, the people that are living in RVs. Um, I, I've never I don't know that anybody describes them as, you know, pure victims or whatever the, the, the phrase that the caller used. But um, the reason you get rats and the reason you get trash piling up is because unlike people who are housed, um, you know, people living on the streets and RVs and tents don't have garbage pickup service. Um, they don't have sewage service. They don't have plumbing. Um, and so I think that to uh, to blame people for producing waste that is not taken away um, is somewhat missing the point. And it's, you know, putting it's sort of describing some people as as dirty and gross as opposed to, you know, those of us who are housed as clean and, you know, not gross. Uh, people who live in houses are also addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol. I myself um, am in recovery and, um, you know, Lots of people have lots of opinions about why uh, people become homeless and people uh, become addicted, but I don't think it's helpful to, you know, stigmatize people by calling them junkies and, and slurs like that. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's it's a very complex problem, and um, I do agree that it's not solved by moving people from place to place. I, I also agree that you know we can't have permanent RV camps all over the city either. There need to be actual solutions. Okay. Thank you for that reaction. Uh, one more item before we take a break here on KUOW's Week in Review, uh, since we're talking about, um, well, we're talking about a whole, a whole lot of issues in the city. One of them is that the mayor of Seattle wants to almost double the uh, property tax levy for parks, and he doesn't have to ask voters for that. City government can raise the levy. Uh, so I wanted to, to understand from you, Erica, why almost doubling the levy? What does he want to spend that money on? And will our listeners notice our parks being very different because of it? I think that they will. Um, so this is this is kind of um, this is a two year, the second cycle of uh, of a um a parks funding process that we approved as voters in 2014, um, where uh, the city council sitting as the parks board and the mayor um, can um, raise this tax up to 75 cents per thousand dollars of uh, home valuation. And uh, the mayor has proposed uh, doubling it from 20 cents to 38 cents. And um, I think that a lot of uh, what he is proposing actually will be quite visible. It's not um, it's not like big capital projects. We're not getting a huge number of new parks. But um, but what is in the proposal is things like um, making sure the restrooms are actually maintained and cleaned um, every single day, including on weekends. Um, making sure the restrooms are open as well, um, doing you know more maintenance, more landscaping, um, and adding uh, essentially revitalizing the parks ranger program, which are sort of security patrols that have historically been at downtown parks and um, Cal Anderson uh, sometimes uh, to you know sort of serve as uh, a mini you know parks. Uh, you know, not, I don't want to go so far as to say parks police force, but parks security force, you know, just kind of um, hanging out, being visible. Um, so I, I do think that the changes will be visible. They won't be. It's not like um, a big parks building program, though. It's more maintenance. Yeah. 
Eric, I had a question about the park ranger program and how it would affect uh, homeless folks uh, as you understand it. Um, so, so like pre COVID essentially uh, people were kind of allowed to sleep in parks if they had no place else to go. Is, is there any change in that? Is there any change in policy that kind of goes along with this uh, or are we kind of reverting to that policy? Well, I mean, I think these, that's kind of, um, that's related to like a separate mayoral push, I think, to to really increase the number of uh, encampment removals, including in parks. Um, and the park rangers would be kind of unified underneath this thing called the unified care team that uh, that Harold has stood up. So um, so they would be integrated into that that whole kind of um uh, approach to parks, but I don't think, but they're not a park sweeping force. Um, I think before COVID, um, and when they were actually like, uh, you know, at, at, uh, at size, cause there's only two parks rangers right now, but when there was an actual, uh, park ranger force, I mean, they did, you know, sometimes, uh, roust, uh, unsheltered people, um, you know, sort of tell them to, to, to behave, um, or, um, in some cases participate in arrests, uh, with, um, Seattle police department, um, you know, there were protests, uh, Occupy Seattle, they were involved in kind of get clearing people out of Westlake Park at that time. But, you know, that's a long time ago. So I think that this may be kind of a re-envisioning of what they are. I mean, I don't want to prejudge exactly what kind of purpose they're going to be put to, because it's, uh, it's really going to be a totally new program. We haven't had parks rangers in a very long time. I guess my question is about homelessness policy in parks, you know, beyond the ranger program, then is it no permanent homeless encampments in parks? Is it zero tolerance for, for anyone sleeping in the parks at night? Like what's the, what's the policy that these park rangers could be helping to enforce, I guess, when it comes to, to homelessness? Well, I mean, I think that because there's only 26 of them, they're not going to be, um, they're not going to really be put on uh, nighttime duty and they're not going to be citywide. So, uh, so I don't know, I don't know the answer to what is, you know, the overall policy, I will say the practice has been um, to remove encampments from parks on kind of a a rolling basis, Um, the city, you know, schedules 2030 encampment removals every month, and then they also uh, remove encampments that are um, that people complain about or that um, they believe pose a hazard or an obstruction that has to be addressed immediately. I mean, you can you know you can go uh, through downtown Seattle, uh, for example, and and see the difference. I mean, Denny Park for uh, at the edge of downtown South Lake Union has been has not had encampments in it for a very long time. Um, that doesn't mean those people who are sleeping there are suddenly housed. They're just sleeping in a park that's less visible somewhere else. But if you're just sleeping in a park at night, that might still go on, basically. I think it'll still go on, yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, we, were, uh, we, we, we briefly got out of Seattle, which always makes me uh, happy as well, when we were talking about Carhartt going to Renton and Amazon Go expanding in Bellevue. I do want to get, um, after a break, to, among other things, a, a bigger picture in our regional um, economy, and we'll talk a little politics and money, and uh, we'll talk about where that hands do not go on the back of a monarch and more when we return to KUOW's Week in Review after a short break. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. 
Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. We're looking at the color chartreuse pea soup as we are streaming Week in Review on Facebook and YouTube. Just search KUOW Public Radio. And there you'll see my guest this week, Publicola editor and publisher Erica Barnett, KUOW politics reporter David Hyde, Puget Sound Business Journal editor-in-chief Ryan Lambert. My name is Bill Radke. We're reviewing the week, and the Queen of Britain died this week, which had Seattle remembering the day she came to town in March of 83, 1983, the monarch and her husband visited the West Coast, starting in California, where the mayor of San Diego shockingly touched her back as he guided her around. That was such a scandal that Seattle's mayor, Charles Royer, says when Liz got here, he kept his hands locked behind his back to avoid any such temptation. The royal couple flew into Boeing Field, visited uh, Children's Hospital and the UW, where the Queen gave huzzas to early British explorers and colonizers. They went to Seattle Center, rode the monorail, cruised out of Elliott Bay on the Britannia. And in honor of Queen Elizabeth, I propose we rename Queen Anne Hill. Anybody with me on that idea? I mean, it's it's an older—who remembers Queen Anne even anymore? What can you even tell anybody about Queen Anne? They're not going to like that. They were pretty mad when uh, the city renamed Lower Queen Anne Uptown. So I'm not sure you're going to get many takers there, Bill. Okay, fair enough. How about renaming it Queen County? (laughs) Or just do nothing. I mean, to me, that's even that's a slap in the royal face, which is even more inappropriate touching. Uh, (laughs) David, aren't you a subject or something? What do you what do you call that? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm Canadian, uh, born in Canada anyway, um, where the queen is actually known as our head of state. Yeah. And uh, my mother was always a a big fan of the queen Mm -hmm. and I'm sure would have been very upset about this news uh, about her passing. And I actually think, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, that that qualifies me to ask all of you, why are Americans so obsessed with the British monarchy when you had this violent revolution to get rid of it in the first place? (laughs) Erica, <laughs> why am I so obsessed with the British monarchy? Why do David? we love the villain in Hamilton? What's the big deal? <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, this is not uh, not my beat. Um, I do. I am on the uh, the, the Meghan and Harry and um, and Kate and William beat. So if you mm. want to talk about that, we can take that offline. I have lots of thoughts, uh, but uh, yeah, not not a uh, not a royal enthusiast otherwise. The Queen? Didn't watch The Queen? Nope. I just remember Carol Burnett, who was a comedian in the 70s, uh, uh, imitating her wave and her and her accent. Ryan, do you have any reflections on the, uh, on the monarchy? No, but to answer David's question, I really think this means we've just come full circle. That's all. <laughs> She's back. They're back. <laughs> what, would be, what would be full circle? I don't know enough about the royalties. What would well, we, we, uh, we left the monarchy in the oh. you know, uh, 1700s, and then... Uh, we're, we're coming right back to it, you know? Yes, let's rejoin. We've seen the alternative, and now we're, uh, yes. we're warming up the idea again, right? Yeah, we're we're ready. Um, okay, so David here, let me just explain to David. In America, we elect our leaders. This is a <laughs> politics reporter David Hyde, and one of, 
Washington's Congress people, as we call it, we don't have a parliament here, a member of Congress in southwest Washington uh, got voted out in what we call a primary. That was Jamie Herrera Butler, and you have described the new Republican nominee as a drain-the-swamp guy, so I wanted to check in with you and see how the swamp is draining. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm actually, uh, it's another thing I'm not really covering for KOW, but I like to talk about it. OPB is covering this race. Uh, Trump back candidate Joe Kent is his name. And he uses this phrase, I have interviewed him, he uses this phrase, drain the swamp all the time, just like Trump. And I think it's uh, sort of worth considering what it means in the current context, where apparently he's holding these <laughs> 30 minute uh, anybody who, who pays can can uh, have special access to him mm. in Washington, D.C. for up to 30 minutes. So it's, it's sort of worth considering what it means, um, you know, for Trump and for these MAGA candidates. And I was thinking about this and, and wonder what you all think, which, you know, it's it's sort of this kind of synonym for the establishment, like, you know, the swamp doesn't believe that the 2020 election was stolen. It's out to get MAGA candidates like Joe Kent. The swamp says that vaccines are safe and effective, uh, but apparently has nothing to do with money corrupting our politics. Not only is he holding uh, this fundraiser in D.C., he's happy to take money from billionaire Peter Thiel, who's the uh, PayPal guy, mm-hmm. you know, hold these 30 minute sit downs. So ultimately, what does drain the swamp actually mean? That's my question. Just basically getting rid of any candidate who opposes MAGA, or is there something more substantive to it? Hmm. Who's going to win, by the way? Oh, boy, that race. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's apparently a tight one. Um, so I guess, you know, that's one to watch for sure. David, I, I want to flip it back on you and ask you a question as a, yes. as a watcher of this race. Do you think so? Uh, you know, Sarah Palin um, lost in um, in Alaska in a uh, ranked choice voting primary, which, um, you know, a lot of uh, Republicans or at least MAGA Republicans are screaming about. Uh, do you think that if this race had been a ranked choice voting primary that Jamie Herrera Butler would have made it through? I mean, that's the speculation. Um, I don't really have a strong opinion about that. Uh, you know, it's it's if if it had been ranked choice voting, I, I, I don't know enough about how ranked choice voting works in practice to know. Of course, we have a, a top two system. If we didn't have a top two system, uh, would Joe Kent have beaten her in a just straight up Republican primary? I mean, I think the answer to that is probably, I guess, uh, in a ranked choice voting system, it's possible that she would have been one to make it through because obviously people voting for the Democrat would have would have made her their number number two choice. So I guess the answer is yes, I think, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Mm hmm. Well, I mentioned uh, Queen Elizabeth only stayed in Seattle for a day. Let's talk about uh, foreigners who would like to stay much longer, Ryan. Uh, Puget Sound Bus- Business Journal reports that a lot of startups around here have begun laying people off, and a lot of these folks are only allowed to be here because they have jobs. Uh, will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, certainly. And it's it's not just startups. I mean, uh, Amazon Care uh, just announced that you know it's it's closing down by year's end, and it's laying off. About 400 people. We've uh, heard that uh, Dreambox, the uh, sort of the uh, K through 12 technology, that e-learning system uh, that so many educators use during the pandemic, is also going through layoffs. And there have been a host of others as well. You know, from uh, rad bikes to fly homes to just a, a variety of, of uh, 
startups and you know uh, mid-sized companies and you know a lot of these companies uh you know particularly the tech companies uh rely on immigrant workers who are working on h1b visas or a variety of other uh immigrant worker visas uh for their employment and so uh their residency is sort of contingent on employment so when these uh layoffs happen which could happen for a variety of reasons it might be uh, you know, VC funding has has slowed down or they anticipate it will slow down or it might just be sort of a, a reorganization of, uh, you know, focus uh, at the at the particular company. But whatever the reason is, you know, when these folks are out of work, uh, they really uh, have to, to scramble uh, to find the next job to keep their residency status uh, up to date. We had a, a wonderful column. A couple of weeks ago by Tamina Watson, who is an immigration attorney and founder of uh, Watson Immigration Law. And she kind of went point by point, you know, uh, depending on uh, what visas uh, these workers have, what they would have to do to sort of retain their residency or to keep their residency uh, in the States and to uh, sort of protect themselves uh, from, from some of these layoffs. But, you know, uh, the fact is uh, that, you know, once these layoffs start, uh, once an immigration problem starts, it's only going to get worse. Uh, you can't turn back the clock to fix it. Um, but there are a couple of things that, uh, you know, immigrant workers or visa workers can do to uh, kind of uh, protect themselves or anticipate uh, some of these changes. But it's uh, uh, it's a it's a real issue. Uh, it's, it's a talent issue for a, a lot of these employers um, who rely on uh you know visa workers uh for for some of these key roles so why is venture capital money drying up well i think i i wouldn't uh say it's did i exaggerate it's, that drying yeah, up it's yeah. a bit much it's it, like calling it's like calling a lenticular cloud a venting or an eruption it's sort of everything was booming uh during the pandemic for uh, a lot of tech companies you know uh you know amazon's uh, earnings were going nuts microsoft's earnings were going nuts uh and, and venture capital money was just flowing at record rates uh in seattle and, and elsewhere um i think it's just sort of stabilized uh so it's mm -hmm. it's not flowing as as it once was and you're getting uh, uh, some big rounds, some, you know, 400, 300 million dollar rounds uh, to some of these companies. Uh, but by and large, the rounds are going to be a little bit smaller, um, a little bit more selective, maybe uh, not as many uh, investments. Uh, so companies are seeing that and they're kind of tightening their belts uh, around this kind of uh, preparing, just getting a little wiser about some of the decisions that they're making. And a lot of it is, you know, again, re-strategizing uh, coming out of the, the, the pandemic. Uh, some things just, some lines of business just aren't there uh, in the same way that they were maybe a year and a half ago. So, uh, you know, things are changing and, you know, uh, startups are always, you know, uh, can be a very volatile uh, sort of uh, business model. They, they have to change quickly. They have to pivot. And sometimes that means uh, layoffs by the dozens or the hundreds. So. Are housing prices or home prices uh, beginning to come down back full circle to uh, being a teacher and being able to live in this town, et cetera? You know, it uh, it seems like that uh, the, the the steam is coming off uh, the home market. They wouldn't uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a, a bear market just yet, but uh, things are starting to slow down. The inventory is coming up, uh, which is a, a positive sign. 
you talk to most economists who are looking at residential real estate, and they're going to say that, that the, the home market uh, as it has been was completely unsustainable and unhealthy, frankly, um, with how quickly. Now, if you're a homeowner trying to sell, it was, it was awesome. You know, you put up your home and a couple of days later, it was it was off the market probably for uh, over asking price. But it seems like that uh, that is uh, starting to uh, be quelled uh, a bit. The, the latest MLS report came back and kind of spoke to that. So um, it's, it's a mildly positive sign. It's still expensive as heck to live in King County. So, um, you know, uh, relief is all relative, I suppose. By the way, David, MLS report, that has nothing to do with the Sounders. I just know I saw your eyebrows go up. David's a little, his hair trigger, very excited about Major League Soccer. Uh, Multiple okay. listing service. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> listing service, to be clear. Yes. Um, I knew. I knew. Okay, good. <laughs> Good. Uh, all right. Anything to anything to add before we take a break and and get back with uh, um, what did Brian just said? The steam is coming off the housing market. See, we're back to Mount Rainier again uh, when we come back and more. But anything more about the uh, the 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 changing economy, etc. Et before we break. When's the recession coming, Ryan? When exactly is the re- is the <laughs> recession coming? Month and week, if possible. And what is a recession? What is it? Oh, oh, God! You, you can ask anyone. You can get uh, a dozen different answers. But uh, I didn't know that. I, I, I think for some people, it's already here. <laughs> Recession already here. Yeah, uh, you talked to. I mean, oh, look at all the uh, the, the office projects that have uh, stalled or been put on hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard from a couple of developers that they don't expect new projects to come in the pipeline. Uh, they think twenty twenty three is going to be a, a pretty slow year for new projects. So. I think everyone is kind of getting in this sort of wait and see mode, obviously taking out a, a, a loan at these interest rates uh, for some of these projects could be uh, prohibitive to uh, smaller developers. So uh, there's there's a lot of factors in play, uh, not just sort of the utility of, of office space and uh, sort of the um, the expense of some of these uh, multifamily projects and stuff like that. It's you know, hey, these uh, developers are, are taking out loans during this time, too. So. Uh, that could that could slow some of this uh, some of this activity down, and uh, we've already seen it uh, this summer. So, yeah, that is what rate hikes are designed to do. Uh, we're talking uh, a little business with uh, Ryan Lambert, editor in chief, Puget Sound Business Journal. A little politics, uh, KOW politics reporter David Hyde, and a little of everything else, and all that included with the Publicola editor and publisher Erica Barnett. And we're going to take a short break. Keep live streaming Week in Review on Facebook and YouTube and come right back and cover more of the week's events. Don't go away. Now I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to go when the volcano blows. Okay, question for you, KOW reporter David Hyde, Publicola's Erica Barnett, Puget Sound Business Journal's Ryan Lambert. You're all journalists. Let's say that it seemed to you that Matt Rainier appeared to be venting a lot of steam, and uh, you were at least curious, if not alarmed. How would you have gone about finding out whether that was, in fact, a steam venting? Would you have just tweeted it to the world that Mount Rainier, quote, appears to be venting? Because uh, was, that was entertaining. I'll give you that, uh, given the uh, 
massive uh, apocalyptic de- destruction that um, that we all know is looming above us uh, with Mount Rainier. Uh, it is not. Uh, it was not venting anything new, and uh, and it's not erupting. But uh, what do you do as a journalist? You're curious. You're on Twitter a lot, Erica. I am, but I don't uh, opine on uh, things that I don't know about. Um, mm. I, I will say uh, on things that I do know about, um, the person who originally tweeted this was a meteorologist. Yes. Um, and so I, I think it would be akin to me, you know, learning that uh, Bruce Harrell wasn't in his office one day and, and tweeting that he appeared to have resigned. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it, you know, I. Uh, unless I had a good joke, though, about uh, about Mount Rainier, I wouldn't I wouldn't be tweeting about it. And I certainly wouldn't be setting off what I what I take it was uh, was a pretty big alarm. I, I found out about the whole thing after it happened because I'm, I'm really not on Twitter that as much as I appear to be. I don't look at it um, except, you know, a couple times a day. Uh, but, yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, it really um, I don't know. Were, were people laughing at it or freaking out? I don't well, know. I think you're onto something, though, with that. You know, maybe maybe it was a sign. Maybe it was like a Vatican thing. White smoke off Rainier means the new mayor or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there was, uh, I mean, there was there was both. Um, I did enjoy some. Like some people would just say because the the original tweet was um, Mount Rainier appears to be venting. So someone said, "Well, let's hear what she has to say." And then somebody else said, um, "No, the Mariners are so close." <laughs> like that was their concern. About the lahar that would that would uh, destroy. Everything. I'm with that. Uh, Matt Rainier has a lot of reasonable gripes. Mm-hmm. Ski traffic. Yeah, all of us. You know, I mean, if if she's venting, that's definitely. Uh, I will yeah. say, I would not have um, tweeted about it either, Erica. Uh, but unlike you, that's because I, I, uh, I try to live by a maxim that somebody once um, recommended for me, which was just never tweet. Never ah. tweet at all. <laughs> so I don't totally live that by that, but I, I but I tried it. Was, to, I thought it was always it. tweet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, Matt Rainier was, uh, it, it's not that it won't ever erupt. It will. Uh, it's just, not, and, and, and I believe there, there's even, well, I don't know whether there's venting going on, but this was not itself venting. And if it, if it had been venting, that would be some pretty serious venting. But uh, granted, that that cloud, the original tweet, I saw it, and it, it looked like steam to me, but, a, but you know, uh, air that that hits the, the, the volcano and it rises up, it gets colder, and then when it's cold enough, it's not, uh, it, that, that moisture condenses into water vapor. And it does, it, it, it looked pretty steamy, but it was just one of those uh, lenticular clouds. I'm happy to report. Um, I want it before we go. I just wanted to add a couple of sort of news bits, tidbits. The COVID booster is available uh, in case any of you are. Uh, I think, Erica, you and my wife have been in the same boat that you're not old enough to weren't old enough to get the, the booster last time around, whereas I was. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I think it's it was, the 50 was the cutoff. Yeah. So you're you're on it. I, I on the cutoff the ba- or the, on the list. You're going to get the bivalent. <laughs> oh, I can't B4, wait. B five. Yeah, I thought. You'd In be fact, happy we can we that. can we can skip forward if we're going to talk about what's making us smile. Oh. Um, I will just I will just jump the line for for half a second sure. and say that's what's making me smile. I'm very excited to have uh, to have that available finally. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get it as soon as possible. Very good. Uh, the I will be getting it soon myself. Um, by the way, Merriam-Webster added a bunch of new words to its dictionary, and they include booster dose, subvariant, 
emergency youth use authorization, false negative, false positive, uh, a lot of pandemic words. Other words that you uh, actually, uh, Ryan, you'd recognize, supply chain is now officially in Merriam-Webster. Must warm a Puget Sound Business Journal uh, chief editor's heart. Um, virtue signaling, since we were talking about Twitter, is now is now a word. Atmospheric river, which is very familiar to us in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, familiar in my household are the words yeet, sus, and cringe, and they are finally official. And pumpkin spice is officially a mixture of usually cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger, cloves, and often allspice that is commonly used in pumpkin pie. The word, use it in a sentence, example that they give in Merriam-Webster is pumpkin spice is everywhere, and at this point you simply give in to the pounds you'll potentially gain from all the glorious spreads during the holidays. So they don't give any credit to Seattle or Starbucks, but I think pumpkin spice, it's been around a long time, but I think the fact that it's everywhere, I feel Seattle can claim can claim that word a little bit. Especially since, uh, Bill, it's measurable in Puget Sound. I don't know if you remember that study from a few years ago where no. a UW scientist measured the pumpkin spice levels following <laughs> Thanksgiving in the Sound. So everywhere is right. In Puget Sound? So pumpkin spice waste? Is that what we're, what that yes. suggests? <laughs> yes. Wow. Careers, kids. Do your do your work, and um, and you too can, can measure... Uh, the the um, the effluent, the pumpkin spice effluent, which probably smells wonderful. Oat milk, also a brand new word. Um, okay, anything else that you want to leave us with that uh, was was hopeful, was smile worthy? Erica's going to get a needle in her arm, which is which is great. Anything else? We cover it. Crickets. I hear that. Okay. I'll well, say, that, I'm going to. Yes. Go ahead, David. I'll say the weather in Seattle has been fantastic. I've loved it. I've loved this week speaking with strikers, students, parents, although I can see right now the wildfire smoke coming. So it's so there. That. It's hazy. <laughs> it's, it was hazy this morning. I hazy. think that's smoky. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. How about you, Ryan? I'm telling you, uh, today uh, was my daughter's first day at kindergarten. Uh, school was open. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. Uh-huh. Uh, our five-year-old could not get away from us fast enough. I thought it was going to be this clingy, emotional thing. She just booked it for the door. Mm. Um, so thrilled to be with her classmates and her friends and, and all that. So I uh, that that emotional moment that we thought we were going to have this morning, it was she was gone. So um, gave us a good chuckle on the way back to the car. Wow, Seattle kindergarten parents are just saying, "Ouch." <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't tell your daughter that kids like the one David interviewed get, what was it, strawberry shortcake, yogurt pop or something? Yes, ice cream pops. Ice cream pops and get to spin all day in Seattle. Uh, okay, that's Week in Review. Not for much longer, maybe. We'll see. That's Week in Review with uh, Puget Sound Business Journal Editor-in-Chief Ryan Lambert, Publicola Editor and Publisher Erica Barnett, KUOW Politics Reporter David Hyde. And, you know, if you missed any part of this show, you can hear the entire thing on the Weekend Review podcast. You can go to KUOW.org and um, and check it out. We could uh, see the show because we had live streaming work, yeoman's work or whatever they call that. And also social media support, as always, from Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. Weekend Review is produced by Kevin Kinestet. And, of course, it sounds as good as it does. Volcano songs and cricket noises and all 
because of Bernard, Bernard Wallet. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill Radke, and we'll see you again next week.